We face uh, really hard times. I'm really aware of it this week with lots of things going on. We have all these things going on with the pandemic. I'm aware of the weight of that as things accelerate, different things are happening, and the load that we carry with that has been going for a long time. I'm aware of the weight that many of us carry with the political divides that we have in our country that obviously are felt very keenly this week with all the things that are going on. And on top of all those two things are all the normal hard things everybody faces in life, all the normal pain and suffering and challenges and health and friends that are sick and different things that are going on. We carry a big load, and I'm aware that we are oftentimes tempted towards despair. And I want to speak today about hope and about grief. And I want to do those in the context of our first reading that we had today from 1 Thessalonians. So I want to begin by just setting out a little bit of context for this passage that we read. This is uh, probably one of St. Paul's first letters written in about the year 50 or 51. He, they, the scholars say he wrote it from Corinth, wrote it back to Thessalonica where he'd been and where he'd preached. He did this on his second missionary journey. He'd gone there and preached and made Christians there. And now he's writing back to them. And they say he's writing from Corinth. He stayed, uh, Raymond Brown, the New Testament scholar, says that he had probably stayed for two months or less in Thessalonica, but had a very close connection with him. You can see how many times he says brothers and sisters in the letter. And he's writing back to them. Now, the city of Thessalonica at the time was a pagan city. It had a Jewish community, but it had lots of facilities to worship the Eastern deities, to worship the emperor. It's, you know, it was in modern day Greece. Um, that's where he's writing. And in this letter, he really, there are really two main parts to what he does. He, the biggest piece of it, he's writing to them about what they already know. He's just reminding them, this is what you already know. This is what I taught you kind of stuff. And then he has one segment where he's getting into some new material and some things he's teaching them that obviously he's heard about that he needs to speak to. And actually, the passage that we had today is from that material. As, as, as he's speaking into that. And the whole letter itself, um, Paul is speaking from a very much a apocalyptic understanding of what it means that Jesus came and lived and died and what, and what he's done. And he would say that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus has ushered in a new age, the end times. And in that, Paul has great hope. And the ultimate of that for hope is Jesus' second coming. And that's what he's going to speak about um, today in the passage. Like he's going to go into the whole business of the second coming. And um, this is the passage, for those of you who have heard, in this, particularly in the South, I'm going to say it, lots of discussion about the rapture. This is where people get the rapture. But just to make sure you know, that's a new invention. That's only in the last 200 years or so. that that's become something that anybody would talk about. So far from a given far from something accepted by the universal church, but that's a whole nother sermon for another day. But what Paul does say today, he's saying in the context of the people of Thessalonica, the Christians he's writing to are experiencing pain and suffering and probably in persecution. And the particular question that um, scholars say that has gotten back to Paul is that some people who are following Christ have died. And the question is, are they in a worse position? 
than those who are still alive. Like, how's this going to work out, Paul? And again, scholars, some scholars speculate that those who've died have actually died from persecution that's taking place in there since he's left. And Paul's going to speak back into that. And the two things that he says, he says more than this, but the two things he says in the very first verse that I want to focus on is he tells them to grieve, but he tells them to do it with hope. Don't do it like those people who don't have hope. And I want to park the whole sermon on those two things and talk about those, mainly on hope. But the first part of this is um, St. Paul telling them to grieve. And, you know, there are parts of the church today that want to make it like when you become a Christian, everything's happy and joyful, like you're never going to experience deep pain and suffering and all this other stuff, that somehow you swallow the Jesus pill and life is good and everything's joyful. That is not the case. That's not the case. And Paul is very aware of that. These guys are are going through persecution, and he's not trying to say, pretend things don't hurt, deny that, and go on. He's not saying that. He's telling them first up to grieve. That's the first thing he's saying is, yeah, grieve. You've experienced a loss. Grieve. And that's an important part about what we do and, and part of how we face loss that we experience. I was speaking to, um, we have a class here that we teach at the church that goes into grief. And the person who runs it, um, Mother Hiltrude, uh, Nesser Telfer, I talked to her this week about it. And she said, you know, I was just telling her what I was preaching on. She was telling me that one of the biggest bits of advice she gives is like, when you face a serious loss, you have to deal with grief. Because if you skip it, her opinion is it will come out in your life. It will come out either in the form of greater depression or it will come out in physical ailments or something like that. And she connected with the theologian Moltmann who's saying that the, how deeply you loved is connected to your grief. And C.S. Lewis in, in a Grief Observed said the same thing. He said, the pain you experience now is connected to the joy you had then. The greater your joy then the greater the pain you have now, he didn't quite say it, but I'll say deal with it. But it's, but grieve, right? And I think it's, I mean, one of the big things I want to do is just put a book stop right there. And I mean, a bookmark and just say, we're not trying to hide this. Christians hurt. We go through suffering. We face loss. We need to grieve. And it's not always some simple formula. I don't know about you, but along the way, I got this, you know, this five stages of grief kind of formula. But it's a lot more complicated than that. And there, you know, there's a whole course, not just a sermon, but a whole course to talk about how we grieve. But just to give you an idea of this, um, I want to quote one psychologist, Laura um, Kralchuk, who specializes in grieving. This is how she describes it. She says, people who are grieving engage in a process by which they explore the unique meaning of their loss and what the loss means to them in terms of who they are and where they're going. What just happened eventually leads to who am I now without this person, and who am I going to be? This process of meaning-making can look like questioning or exploring the fine details of the loss. And finally, people can explore how to rebuild their lives and once again lead lives that make sense to them, even in the shadow of great loss. The tricky thing is that there are no clear answers to the questions. 
it's a process and it takes lots of different shapes. And I think the thing that we, in this time and age we live in now, that we also might stop and think about is it's not just that we're talking about loss of somebody that we love. That's what they were writing. I mean, that's what the question that had gotten to Paul was about the people who had died. But we face grief in lots of different ways, right? We face um, grief sometimes in the loss of a serious relationship that's gone on and then there's a breakup or a divorce. That there's a, there's a form of grief and loss that takes place there. And, or I'm very aware that even just things you expect you should have that you don't get it involves grief. I have a niece that was a senior in high school last year, and I know she went through grief on this. I certainly did for her, as I could see that she didn't get to do prom, and she didn't get to do a normal graduation, and all the different things that went on. There's a, there's a loss, and there's a, some grief. Or the loss of a job. Sometimes people call these living losses, but it's a form of grief too. And I think St. Paul would say about those things too, grieve. But he says... Grieve with hope. He actually says that don't grieve like those who don't have hope. He's saying grieve with hope. And in the pagan location of Thessalonica, they would have been, if you went and read the epitaphs of their tombs, what have you, they had this view of people being snatched from life. And Paul wants to say, if they're being snatched, they're being snatched to Jesus. That there's a bigger context of hope. And everything he's saying is in, the hard, is in the context of hardship that they're facing. Apparently life and death hardships. And I think it speaks to us and our own predicament of the hardships that we face, right? And we're reminded again and again of how important hope is. And Paul wants to say, grieve, but do it with hope. We need hope. And I've said this before, but they've done lots of fascinating studies around hope, right? They've done studies that um, students in college who have hope have better grades, more likely to graduate. They've done studies that athletes who have hope perform better, recover better, all these different things. And they've done studies the negative way. They've done studies that elderly folks who don't have hope are like twice as likely to pass away on a quicker pace. We need hope. Andy Stanley, the preacher, says, you know, you can go, he says humans can go 40 days without food that they can go four days without water, that they can go four minutes without air, but they cannot go four seconds without hope, that we really need hope. And we're going to begin to talk about this, but sometimes we reach out to grab hope in different places. And one of the things that goes on sometimes, I think, is people reaching out to find hope in our government and in our political leaders. And maybe there's some sting with that going on right now in different kinds and different fashions. But I saw a quote the other day from Chuck Colson, who some of y'all will know the name, but he was one of the advisors to President Nixon. He's the guy who did prison time for his involvement with Watergate. And then he really came to a deep place with Christ in prison and formed prison fellowship ministry and all of that later. He says this, many Christians, like most of the populace, believe that political structures can cure all our ills. The fact is, however, that government, by its very nature, is limited in what it can accomplish. What it does best is perpetuate its own power and bolster its own bureaucracies. It leads us then to begin maybe to ask the question, what is hope? And how do we as Christians live it? I think we use that term a lot 
to think about, sometimes we use it sort of very casually to just mean a kind of wish. Somebody may say, I hope the Dallas Cowboys win. I think that's maybe sometimes hope against hope, but hope the Dallas Cowboys win, or I hope that it's sunny tomorrow, or I hope something like this. It's kind of a wish. But we're talking about something much deeper than that. And Paul in this letter is talking about something much deeper than that, something much more profound. I like the way that the pastor Adam Hamilton defines hope. He says that it's the conviction that despite one's present circumstances, the future will in some meaningful sense be better than the present. I'm going to read that one more time. The conviction that despite one's present circumstances, the future will in some meaningful sense be better than the present. And when we take it from a noun to a verb form, it's this idea that we believe and act as if the future will be better than the present. And, you know, Paul wants to say to the Thessalonians that because we believe that Jesus lived and died and was resurrected, that there's hope in that. And that whatever the worst circumstance is that we face in life, the worst thing, the worst loss that we face in life, it'll never be the last word. That's what Christian hope is about. And if you want to read passages uh, in Scripture, I'm going to give some, but there are lots of them, lots of them in the pages of Scripture about hope. And I think when you want to get real, if you need to turn to one book in the Bible to get real, you go to the Psalms. And you, because the Psalms will teach you to pray honestly. They'll teach you to cry out to God. They'll teach you all the emotions that can be involved in prayer. Walter Brueggemann, um, when he looks at the Psalms, he says that there are three different kinds. And I'm going to mention these briefly, but I want to dwell on the last one. But he, he talks about how there's Psalms of orientation. There are Psalms that speak to when things are going well. And you get all the creation psalms and different things. And then he talks about how there's psalms of disorientation. When things are not going well, Psalm 13, Psalm 22, the one Jesus quotes from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are psalms of disorientation. And then he says a third category are psalms of reorientation. These are ones that bring us back to holding on to God in in a place of wholeness. And maybe... A great example of that is Psalm 40. And with Psalm 40 starts out in the, in the, very, the very first wor- verse, depending on which translation you're looking at, by, by saying that I put my whole trust in the Lord. Or the, maybe the more common translation that you'll see is, I waited patiently on the Lord. Certainly our U2 fans who know the Psalm 40, that is for the Psalm, starts out that way. I waited patiently on the Lord. And the reason why it's that word is that the Hebrew word can have the meaning wait or it can mean hope. They're both, they're kind of tied together. But the reason why I wanted to dwell there for a second is to emphasize something that Paul is making clear to the Thessalonians, that when that Psalm says to put all your hope in the Lord, it's calling us to something active. It's calling us to something active. It's calling us to do something. It's calling us to place our hope, place our whole hope in the Lord. When Paul tells the Thessalonians, grieve, but don't do it without hope, he's saying actively engage hope. However you do that, you're going to actively engage hope. 
It's not just, oh, I hope hope comes. It's, he's saying, lean into this. Hold on to hope. Put it there. And lots of scripture goes to that place. And I, I just want to give a, a, just a few examples. From Romans 8, where Paul says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing, so you may abound in hope. Or we think about the first chapter of Ephesians saying, we're, We are called to hope. Or Paul, when he's mentoring, right, when he's writing this letter in 1 Timothy, and he's telling Timothy how to be a good pastor. He's, he's telling Timothy, we have our hope set on the living God, who's the Savior of all people, especially to those who believe. Or the writer to the Hebrews, who says, hold fast to the confession of hope. Hold on to it. Make that part of who you are. And First Peter who talks about having a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And St. Paul, in writing to the Thessalonians today, he knows they're sad. He knows they've maybe faced persecution. He knows they've had people they love die. He's telling them to grieve, but have this hope. Hold on to this hope. Let this hope be in you. Let this hope breathe in you because it will affect how you see everything. It will affect how you see these hard things. It will affect how you see those who've loved God, who've gone on. It'll change you that way. I want to um, conclude this morning with a story that comes from a professor. This is a guy that was a chairman of a philosophy department at a Christian university. It's a guy named Dr. Gary Habermas. And his specialty was focusing on writing and researching about the resurrection. And he can talk about all the theory and the academics that he's engaged in but he's going to tell a story about it coming into his life in a more practical way. And, I, and it's a little bit longer, but I want to end with it. And I think it's important. So let me just read it. This is him speaking firsthand. He says, in 1995, my wife, Debbie, went to the hospital for tests. The first sentence I remember that the doctor uttered to Debbie was, you've got some serious problems here. My heart sank into my stomach and both turned instantly to water. I had to sit down. Little did I know that my belief in Jesus' resurrection was about to be severely tested by the sting of pain and grief. Debbie was diagnosed with stomach cancer. Four months later, at the age of 43, she passed away just after we celebrated our 23rd wedding anniversary. I had lost my best friend. During Debbie's suffering, I regularly took refuge in the truth of Jesus' resurrection. It had been my major research area for 25 years. I knew that the resurrection had a historical, a theoretical side, but I wasn't fully aware of its practical power. Jesus' bodily resurrection occupies the very center of the Christian faith. After he died on the cross, Jesus was raised from the dead. He appeared to many people in his physical body that was now immortal. How did all of this help me while Debbie was dying? I imagined what God might say to me in response to my questions about Debbie. He would ask me, Gary, did I raise my son from the dead? Of course you did, Lord, I would respond. But why is Debbie dying? Gary, did I raise my son from the dead? question would come again. Yes, Lord, but Gary, did I raise my son from the dead? 
I imagined God repeating the same question until I got his point. There was an answer to Debbie's suffering, even if I didn't know it. If Jesus had been raised, then I can trust that Debbie will be raised someday too. It was sufficient to know that because of Jesus' resurrection and because Debbie and I belong to Jesus, that we would see each other again. Paul says, grieve, but grieve with hope. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you that you love us and you call us to be a people of hope in the world where we experience pain and grief and, and loss and suffering. Give us by your grace the strength to always hold on to the hope that the worst thing that happens here is never the last word. May we share that with others. May we live that in how we conduct our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.